Hey, my name is Innocent Maginga and you're listening to the Learnability Podcast. For individuals seeking growth, we've created this open-ended exploration into our ability and desire to learn. I guess you could call it a combination of what we know and how we learn. So in conversation with individuals, either speaking from experience, belief, or science, we seek to find answers to how to navigate and win in this information age. So I want to start off by thanking everyone for listening, for feedbacking, for sharing, and subscribing. I guess that's important as well. And we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up with uh, new guests different concepts, collaborations. We will be going deeper into the more scientific parts, inviting academics, writers, and yeah, there's a lot more to learn. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I actually said it when we started this, that I believe this podcast will be dope as by episode 100. So thank you for being with us on that journey. In today's episode, we'll be talking about a subject that is part of one of our missions at Learnability. So, all of you, I hope, but most of you might have listened to episode number two with Konrad Svenninger, called 20 Years of Trying Out Life as a Tantric Monk. Towards the end of that episode, I I believe it was during uh, the recurrent questions, Konrad was telling us about the work he has been doing through his humanitarian organization called Soteria International. They are currently working close with the European Parliament and the United Nations in promoting an importance of looking at our inner ecology. We are just like the outer nature follows principles, the inner nature also follows principles. And when we live in times like ours where exhaustion symptom is the most common disease, where people are depressed just by life. And it's still rising. It's rising, it's an epidemic. And um, just like what we also did in the European Parliament was lobbying for we need to look at our inner ecology because in the 80s we could see that the trees were not... They were dying, you know, they, they lost their, their pines, they, the lakes got dead or overpopulated and died. And this to needing to take care of the nature was an acute question. It didn't matter if you were left or right, wanting more taxes, less taxes, we need to take care of the nature. And today we stand in the position where we see that we collapse in our inner nature. Yes. We can't handle life anymore. And we must start to see that as an ecologic crisis. And just like we in the outer ecologic crisis, it was needed to study what are then the, the principles. In a similar fashion, I would like to take a concept that we know of, that I think all of us can agree is something that we should be working on, and that's obesity. Obesity is defined as a medical condition in which excess body fat has accumulated to an extent that it may have a negative effect on the health. So it's a physical thing. What I would like to talk about is infobesity, a more mental accumulation of negative information consumption 
junk learning that creates infobesity. It was actually Conrad who sent me this one article by Michael Simmons called Most People Think This Is A Smart Habit, But It's Actually Brain Damaging. So I read this article. I thought it was really well put together. I wanted to share it, but I wasn't quite sure people would take their time to read it as it is a 35-minute read. So I realized this is perfect. I have a podcast. Let me create a podcast version of this article. So I'll be mixing some of Michael Simmons' writing with my own thoughts and input on the subject. And this episode is called Five Ways to Fight Infobesity. So, obesity, infobesity. Assuming that all learning is inherently good is like assuming that all food makes us healthier or that all news we consume make us well-informed. We know that's not true. In reality, the opposite is true. The default, the easiest thing to reach for, is often junk food and junk media, unfortunately. And the same is often true for learning. So just like eating McDonald's doesn't make us healthier, junk or fake learning doesn't make us smarter. In fact, Simmons' point is that this kind of learning actually makes us dumber. To understand this, we first have to picture learning as a circular process. We take in new information, we reason with that information, we might experiment with it in the real world, get some feedback from that experimenting, and then we take what we learn through the cycle again. That's how we learn new information. When one part of that process is faulty, then it can throw off the entire learning process. For example, if all we're collecting is bad ideas, then our reasoning is obviously going to be bad, which is going to lead to ineffective actions and so on. It's sort of a negative feedback loop. 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 Negative Normally, when we think of brain damage, we think of a head injury disabling a person's ability to think. But a knock on the head isn't the only way to disable our brains. If we think of brain damage in broader terms, then brain damage can be caused by anything that physically changes our brains in a way that makes us less intelligent or functional. To further explain this, we need to go into neuroplasticity. Whenever we learn something new, our brain physically changes. More specifically, the brain either makes a new connection between neurons or strengthens an existing one. I remember hearing of one study where they took London taxi drivers to look at how the brain adapts when required to retain vast amounts of information. For 150 years, every new cab driver has had to pass a grueling exam, known to Londoners simply as 
the knowledge. As the scientists suspected, mastering the knowledge may have a physical impact on the brain itself. Their study concluded that part of the hippocampus was indeed larger than average in these drivers. In fact, the most dramatic differences were seen in the drivers who were on the job the longest. The hippocampus has a spatial map in it, and what seems to be happening in the taxi drivers is that the spatial map is laid down of central London, and laying this down causes the connections to develop and grow and more of them to form, and that makes part of the hippocampus get bigger. This study suggests that the adult brain can refashion its basic anatomy according to the requirements of its owner. And another example of this, I was listening to a new podcast called Should This Exist by Katarina Fake, produced by Wait What, which produces um, another favorite podcast of mine called Masters of Scale. In this episode of Should This Exist, the first episode actually. We call it muscle memory, but you know, we know that the memory is not in our muscle, it's in our brain. Olympic athletes, musicians, trained pilots, trained young surgeons, helping fallen soldiers. Where else can we apply this thing? Learning a foreign language, learning to play the cello, help of rehab. The scientist you just heard was Daniel Chow. He invented a headset that hacks your brain with electricity so that you can learn as fast as a kid again. Right now, this headset helps you learn motor skills faster. In fact, many elite athletes are already using it during training. But we're not far from a future when Halo could help anyone master anything. I found this to be a fascinating company using technology to enhance our learning process. And I actually got some, some ideas about how this could be used for memorization. Um, but we'll get into that another time. So, how do we tie this back to infobesity? Well, junk learning creates the same physical changes in our brains that positive learning does, which then hurts our ability to function effectively. So if, if these new connections are reinforcing false and harmful concepts, beliefs, or ideas, the physical results can be functionally equivalent to brain damage. So while we need to look at learning as this circular process that actually enhances the retention, also known as the memorization process, we also need to look at learning as sequential where it happens in a predictable sequence. It's like uh, how we roll before we sit. We sit before we stand, we stand before we walk, and we walk before we run. So the same thing happens with our cognitive development. Although it's maybe not as obvious as the physical abilities, ideas in our brain build upon other ideas in a predictable order from simple to complex. For example, when it comes to math, we start with single-digit numbers, move to double-digit numbers, then triple-digit numbers, then addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and so on. You might not remember this or remember when you learned to speak or learn a new language and how hard it was back then. But that's because you've gone through that process and now you built on that knowledge.
it's important to understand how we are building our platform of knowledge. It's like imagine building a house where each new thing you learn is like adding a new brick and then cementing it to other bricks to create like a knowledge structure. As we learn more, our building becomes stronger. The problem comes when we build our buildings on a poor foundation. In this case, counterintuitively, adding new knowledge weakens the whole building. So imagine like adding fake bricks in the third layer and building on top of that. That third layer will still be unstable and affect the rest of the building. And if we keep on adding new knowledge to an unstable building, it eventually falls down. These building collapses are our existential crisis. Example are quarter life and midlife crisis, where we hit rock bottom after reconsidering our deepest beliefs. Removing these fundamental ideas forces us to reconsider all of the ideas that were dependent on that idea. Um, I think I'm in a stronger place than I ever, than I ever was after the, the breakdown, or I like to say the breakthrough. I think you can apply that in similar way to these crises. So you have to break down the building and harmful ideas to break through. Break it down, unlearn, and break through. So the bottom line is that junk learning damages our brain. And then it makes us more prone to more junk learning, which damages our brain even more. There's this quote by Alvin Toffler, an American writer, futurist, and businessman. He says, The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Okay, so now to the juicy part. Five ways to fight infobesity, or junk learning as Michael Simmons would call it. So we've established a few things. Learning physically changes our brain. Much of the learning that people are exposed to by default is junk learning. Junk learning is effectively equivalent to brain damage and impairs our ability to function in the world. Now the question is, what do we do about it? Lesson 1 At the same time that we're building our base of knowledge, the knowledge is expiring. A great book about this dilemma is The Half-Life of Facts by Samuel Arbusman. It revealed that if you got a liver disease and go to a doctor who graduated more than 45 years ago, half of that doctor's information will probably be wrong. That's scary. And it's not just medicine, it's happening in computer science, design, nutrition, psychology, basically everywhere. We have all this knowledge, but it's losing value. And to make it worse, we don't even know when a piece of knowledge expires. It's not like you get an email notification saying, Hey, that thing you learned three years ago, it's not true anymore. The end result is that we operate with false ideas and we stop getting results. 
Now, if that isn't enough to blow your mind, consider that 90% of the scientists who have ever lived are alive today. So each of these scientists are increasing the rate at which new information is created and old information decays. Also consider that some of the most interesting, consequential future fields, for instance, cryptocurrency, change the fastest. So what should we do in the light of all this change? One of the models that Michael Simmons found helpful, and actually agree on this one, comes from the world of personal finance. One of the biggest distinctions in the world of personal finance is between purchase and investment. So purchases immediately lose value, while investments have the potential to increase in value. For example, a car is a purchase. The second you drive a new car off the parking lot, it loses value. A home, on the other hand, is an investment. It has the potential to increase in value. So with this, we can look at learning like running on a treadmill. As the speed of the treadmill increases, you need to run faster or you'll be thrown off. In similar ways, as the society changes more rapidly, you need to update your skills more rapidly or risk to fall off into irrelevancy. While you still need to keep up with the latest within your field, in general, many people undervalue learning investments in a stable base of knowledge that doesn't change. Lesson learned. Look for information that actually increases in value over time. When it comes to knowledge, think like an investor, not a consumer. Another great quote, this time by historian Daniel Burstyn. The greatest obstacle to knowledge is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. In 1999, psychologists Justin Kruger and David Dooning wrote a research paper that introduced us to the Dooning-Kruger effect. The idea is simple but counterintuitive. In learning any new domain, our confidence is actually highest when we start. This is surprising because rationally we should have the lowest confidence when we know the least. However, Dooning and Kruger found that when we don't know what we don't know, we overestimate our abilities. Once we have our bubble burst and learn enough to recognize our ignorance, most people's confidence takes a huge dip. It only slowly rebounds if we keep going. Unfortunately, many give up during the dip phase. And from a book that I've been reading called How We Learn by Benedict Carey, they speak about pre-testing. That means doing something similar to the final exam right before you start. And how if we implemented pre-testing in schools, this reveals your lack of knowledge in the subject. It takes down that confidence 
and it actually it actually gets you more in tune to listening or what you don't know. So what's the lesson learned? No matter how much we know, we only know a fraction of all there is to know. We must assume our ignorance. An attitude of caution can help us avoid developing false beliefs that can lead to irrational decisions. In other words, know nothing. Seek to learn. So, lesson three. Confirmation bias is our tendency to only look for and believe information that supports what we already think and to dismiss evidence to the contrary. One of the biggest daily examples of confirmation bias involves our social media bubbles. We read the same sites, listen to the same friends who agree with us most of the time, and watch the same news over and over and over again, which only confirms what we already believe. When we're exposed to something that doesn't fit our model of the world, we unconsciously either ignore it, minimize it, or attack it. When we only hear opinions that confirm our beliefs, our learning is incremental at best. We learn the most by proving ourselves wrong, not by proving ourselves right. Many of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century independently came to this conclusion. Jean Piaget, one of the greatest psychologists, showed that we grow our knowledge the most when we transform our thinking to be able to accommodate external knowledge that doesn't fit at first. In his model, when we are exposed to new information, we adapt it in one of two ways. So the first is assimilation. We use our existing base of knowledge to understand a new object or situation. The second is accommodation. We realize that our existing base of knowledge does not work and needs to be changed in order to effectively deal with a new object or situation. And this lesson actually reminds me of a theory I heard about learning, how being wrong actually can improve your memorization. So if I ask you now, hoping you don't know the answer, what is the capital of Australia? Go ahead, take your time, think about it. All right, so if you didn't know this, I'm guessing you might have answered Sydney. That's wrong. You might have answered Melbourne. That's wrong as well. Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, they're all wrong. The capital of Australia is Canberra. So being wrong in this way, if you really went into trying to remember or know the capital of Australia, learning that it wasn't what you thought, Sydney or whatever you guessed, knowing that it's actually Canberra, that will stick better in your memory now that you were wrong the first time. So going back to your platform or the building of knowledge you're constructing with bricks, focusing on learning what we already believe is like building a really skinny wall 
that will fall over as it gets larger. On the other hand, we go through a growth spurt when we actively search for disconfirming evidence and allow accommodation to happen. It's easier said than done because we hate admitting when we are wrong. Counteracting confirmation bias takes incredible psychic energy. It's the equivalent of doing a hard physical exercise. It's difficult, but worth it. A fascinating study at the University of South California shows just how unsettling it can be to go against our confirmation bias. In the study, participants had their brain scanned while they were presented with counter-arguments to some of their political beliefs, such as laws restricting gun ownership should be more restrictive or gay marriage should not be legalized. Amazingly, what the study found is that some parts of the brain, for example the amygdala, that responds to physical threats also responds to intellectual threats. In other words, reading about facts we disagree with can provoke the same sort of response we'd feel if we were being chased by a lion. So what's the lesson learned on confirmation bias? We need to identify and stress test our most fundamental beliefs about the nature of reality and learn how to handle strong emotions that will come up when we do. A tool for this that I've taken from another area is a feedback ladder. So we as even as adults are really bad at giving and receiving feedback generally. When I was 18 years, I read about this feedback ladder and I started applying it with our employees. And in Swedish, it works beautifully because it's 4F. So I tried to recreate this to get 4Ds in English. At the bottom of the ladder, and what you really don't want to do when you get feedback, is to defend. Försvara in Swedish. The second step on the ladder, which you don't want to do as well, is to describe or explain. Förklara in Swedish. The third step on the ladder, which is the first step you should be doing when you receive feedback, is to deconstruct or understand. Förstå in Swedish. And on the top of the ladder, what you really want to do is to do, change, förbättra, förändra in Swedish, defend, describe or explain, deconstruct or understand. What you really want to do is to do, change. So, lesson four. Humans are social learners. We watch someone do something and emulate it. If you're a parent, you've seen this firsthand in your child. You say something or make a facial expression and your little one copies it. But this can go wrong if we copy the wrong things from the wrong people. Unfortunately, we do this all of the time as a result of the halo effect. 
And this is not related to the halo technology we mentioned earlier from should this exist. This is a cognitive bias that makes us trust a person's advice in one area of life simply because they are an expert in another area. Researcher Phil Rosenzweig, might have pronounced that wrong, breaks it down further in his book The Halo Effect. It's like listening to a famous painter give his or her grand plan for re-engineering society. It's trusting a scientist to tell us what's wrong with our political system when that scientist has no experience in politics. It's following the fashion advice of a professional athlete. It's trusting the advice of a business celebrity who turned around a big company 10 years ago and wrote a best-selling book that helps us grow startups. While these examples seem obvious, the halo effect also shows up in much more subtle ways that are harder to recognize. In the autumn of 2001, after the September 11 attacks, George W. Bush's approval ratings rose sharply. No surprise there, as the American public closed ranks behind their president. But the number of Americans who approved of President Bush's handling of the economy also rose, from 47% to 60%. Now, whether or not you liked Bush's economic policies, there's no reason to believe that his handling of the economy suddenly bettered in the weeks after September 11. But it's hard to keep these things separate. General approval of the president carried over to approval of a specific policy. The American public conferred a halo on his president and made favorable attributions across the board. After all, it's uncomfortable for many people to believe their president might be good on issues of national security but ineffective on the economy. It's far easier to think that he's about the same for both. So, lesson learned. If we can become much more suspicious of listening to celebrity experts in any field, instead, specifically look for people who have experienced success over and over and over again. Not because of luck or celebrity, but because of skill. Many of these individuals are not celebrities. Carefully experiment with their advice to see if it will transfer to your context. Okay, so the last lesson for today, the last way to fight infobesity for this time. Hopefully, you have listened to the episode with Paulina Modlitba as well, called Gathering the Innovators of Tomorrow. In that episode, Paulina spoke about what she called spider web learning. Imagine that you're not just learning things separately, but try to build a, a spider web of insights. So whenever you learn something new, connected to something that, you know, something that you already know. And that's how you start understanding the bigger, the larger picture. Sort of. This concept is also called learning transfer. 
This is our ability to learn a concept in one domain and then apply it to another. In learning science, positive transfer is when learning something makes it more likely that we will transfer our knowledge. Learning addition and subtraction, for example, help children then learn multiplication and division. Learning to play one racket sport, like tennis, can help others learn to play other racket sports, like badminton or table tennis. Negative transfer, on the other hand, is when learning something hinders learning transfer. If you ever switch from driving an automatic transmission to a manual one, you've had to unlearn the habit of simply pressing the gas and get used to engaging the clutch, shifting gears before accelerating. If you're learning a language like French or German, you've got to get over the fact that in English, nouns have no gender. Or consider the all too familiar case of a software password. Just when you finally memorized one, you get asked to create another one. Do this a few times and it's hard to remember which password goes where because you keep getting them confused. So research tells us that if this analysis is correct and keeping in mind that it's difficult to predict what skills will be required two or three decades from now, the best option seems to supplement the teachings of specific knowledge with the teaching of metaheuristics that are transferable. These may include strategies about how to learn, how to direct one's attention in novel domains, and how to monitor and regulate one's limited resources, such as small short-term memory capacity and slow learning rates. So, lesson learned? Being too specialized can hurt future learning if done alone. Supplement by spending more of your time learning fundamental knowledge that doesn't change. This is why we created Learnability. So, these were five ways to fight infobesity. I hope you understood the concept of infobesity and that you got some tools to take with you. Let me summarize them for easier digest. So, one, facts are expiring and we don't even know it. So look for information that actually increases in value over time. When it comes to knowledge, think like an investor, not a consumer. Second, a little knowledge is dangerous. Realize you know a little bit. Assume ignorance to avoid developing false beliefs that can lead to irrational decisions. And when you realize how little you know, don't be frightened or demotivated as your confidence goes down because, as you know, it will come up again as you learn more. Third, our confirmation bias makes us progressively more dumb. Identify and stress test your most fundamental beliefs about the nature of reality and learn how to handle strong emotions that will come up when you do. Remember the feedback ladder. Don't defend, don't describe, deconstruct, and do. Fourth, we too often trust the wrong ideas and the wrong people. Remember that celebrities are often not experts at anything except their specific field of celebrity. 
if it's music, acting, or a sport, and so on. Be super careful about whom and what you choose to emulate, and try to notice when you are emulating something. 5. Over-specializing limits our ability to learn across disciplines. Specialized knowledge can hurt future learning. Instead, spend most of your time learning fundamental knowledge that doesn't change, such as mental models. Knowledge doesn't innately compound to make us smarter. So I'd like to thank Michael Simmons for putting this article together and letting me borrow some of his words and structure. And I hope you got some lessons with you on how to fight your infobesity. You've been listening to the Learnability Podcast, and I'm your host, Innocent McGinga. If you want to contribute to the platform or find previous episodes and additional material, you can do that at learnability.online. And oh yeah, don't forget to subscribe.